Hello again, this is Derek Duncan, Associate Editor of Architecture for Golf Digest, and you're listening to Episode 69 of the Feed the Ball Podcast. Yes, we're going back to our old standard format for this episode with my guest, Ron Kirby. When I was in high school, I spent one summer reading through a series of books written by an author named John Jakes. The books were historical fiction, or maybe, more accurately, historical romance. One of the series traced the Kent family through several generations during the foundational years of America, and the other series chronicled the fate of two families before and during the Civil War. What was interesting about these stories, beyond the breezy reading, was that the main characters continually showed up at and factored into nearly every major moment in American history. They were right there, always, with Paul Revere, at the Boston Tea Party, in Washington's army during the Revolutionary War, with Ulysses Grant at West Point, and then in the orbits of Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. It seemed so improbable, a contrived literary device, but I suppose a necessary one for an author taking on such grandiose, if pulpish, material. You might remember them as 1980s television miniseries. I thought of John Jakes quite a bit leading up to this talk with Ron Kirby. I suspect a great many of you listening aren't familiar with Ron, and if that's the case, I thank you now for giving this episode a listen. You won't be disappointed. The reason is because Kirby's career has been a little like the characters in the Jakes novels. Ron has been first-person witness to a broad swath of history, sharing experiences and relationships with some of the most important architectural figures of the second half of the 20th century. Originally a greenkeeper, he got involved in course design and construction, first with Mark Mahana, a prominent Florida architect, before working projects for Dick Wilson. A few years later, Robert Trent Jones hired him away, and Kirby went on to oversee seminal projects for Trent Jones in the U.S., Hawaii, Europe, and Africa. In the course of his considerable travels, he met Gary Player, and the two set up a design business together in Atlanta, continuing to work worldwide through much of the 1970s. Then, in the late 80s, Kirby turned his practice over to then-partner Dennis Griffiths and joined Jack Nicholas and headed back to Europe, guiding Nicholas design operations on the continent and in the UK and Ireland. It was there in Ireland where he established connections that led him to getting the job designing and constructing Old Head on one of the most astonishing golf sites on Earth. If you haven't heard of Old Head... Google it now. If all this sounds like an incredible and unlikely journey, it is, even if it's just scratching the surface. Through luck, competence, and hard work, Ron has had a front-row seat to observe the trajectory of golf course architecture through several generations. Eat your heart out, Kent family. And he's here in this podcast episode to walk us through it, share stories, and be quite candid about how it all went down. He's not done either. Ron is still active and is currently in the middle of a substantial rebuild of Apes Hill on Barbados with shaper Justin Carlton, and he continues to consult and tweak the design at Old Head. Knowing his approximation to so many storylines of 20th century golf architecture, I've been trying to get Ron on the podcast for about a year. Unfortunately, a number of issues, including the passing of his wife Sally earlier in the year, delayed us. Our condolences go out to Ron and his family. It's been a difficult time, but he was generous enough to share his considerable recollections and opinions with me. Now, I'm very happy to present to you this wonderful discussion with Ron Kirby.
let me start off. How old are you right now? I'm 87. Uh, my birthday is in October, so I'll be 88 in October. Wow. And and I mean, and we'll get to this, but you are not slowing down, are you? I don't want to know. Uh, the virus has slowed me down, and uh, we have the very active project uh, that's bulldozing and running running wild down there in Barbados. They actually brought them back to work about three or four weeks ago, and they're running the diggers and the dozers, and we're doing videos. And uh, is that good, Ron? Is oh, that's pretty good. Don't take it any lower. You know, if you get a few big boulders, put them over the edge. Blah blah blah. We're trying to do it that way, but there's nothing. You know, and Justin, that shaper, he's out of town. He's down in Dallas. But right, Justin Carlton. Yeah, he's trying to get back in. But when he gets back in, then uh, that project will be able to. uh, I just ride. I'll ride with him for a week and just. Uh, polish off some of the rough shaping they've done on the newer holes. But there was five or six holes that they grasped. We got them good enough to grasp. Yeah. So, you know, and, and we'll get to this, but I, since we're talking about it, I'll just ask you right now. Wouldn't it, how would it, this technology, you know, you're able to see what's happening, you know, on an island in the in the middle of the Atlantic, basically, right now, and you can see almost day-to-day updates on that. How would that have changed uh, golf design in the you know in the era that you came up in would that have made a big difference to be able to have that kind of communication uh i would say the minute yeah in the early days no uh because it was more of a hands-on in the fields and i'm doing exactly that right now but when the p- computer stuff came in with the cad programs and everybody doing stuff uh they would probably I would say, uh, yes, the uh, the new communications, the the, the videos, and uh, I mean, the videos are so good now. I mean, they could move a bunker uh, just sitting uh, sitting in an office in the Golden Bear Plaza, you know. Uh, if Jack didn't want that bunker on one side of the green, he could move it, and they, they, uh, he could watch it actually get moved, you know. But in the early days, uh, the Mark Mahana, the Wilson, and the Trent Jones stuff, they were mostly done in the field. The shaping was done. It had to be in the field shaping. Mm-hmm. And and especially when Pete uh, came around, they were all hands-on guys that did, did the better jobs. I mean, you could get the – there probably was a lot of golf courses built that uh, didn't get good attention to them, and they paid for that, you know. Right. The good ones are the ones that people lived on. Well, let's go back to the beginning. So um, where are you from? You grew up in in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, We were in a golf family. My dad was a club pro in New England, and uh, I got a caddy scholarship. I got the We Met Caddy Scholarship in 1950. That was the second year they had the the caddy scholarship in Massachusetts. And I went to, at those days, uh, my dream there was to, go through uh, the turf school at UMass, two-year turf program, and get out and be a greenkeeper. And uh, I almost had that, well, I ended up doing it, but the Korean thing interrupted the second year. We were all uh, told we had A1 draft statuses. So we, I jumped and went in the Coast Guard for three years and um, got married, and Sally and I traveled out to Seattle 
And um, I was on a, a white ship there, traveled out into the Pacific. And we lived in Seattle for two and a half years. I came back and then I finished school and got a greenkeeper job in New England. But when it snowed, uh, I went south to Florida and I thought maybe I'd get down to Florida and just get a job cutting greens. Uh, just something. So the, And I had two kids then. So, so Sally and I drove down. We, you know, in those days, you didn't have credit cards. You had to have money saved up. And the, the greenkeeper job I had was nine-hole course in Petersham, Massachusetts. And Sally ran the pro shop, and that was out of the sun porch on the, uh, the greenkeeper's house. was right up on the front by the clubhouse. <laughs> so we, we saved money in jars for ball sales, you know, used balls. I dived out of the pond. We had, she did the laundry, did the uh, the towels, and she did lunches on, uh, on Sundays. So we had all these jars of money that we'd, we'd take the money and go to Florida. And you could, I didn't get, my dad introduced me to Mark Mahana, uh, and he was a greenkeeper, golf designer in South Florida here in Miami. So Mark said he was building another nine and uh, asked me if I'd build any greens. And I said, no, I seeded a couple, but I've never built a green. And he says, well, I got the crew that knows how to build them. You just, if you want, you just go along with them. So I worked one winter on a nine-hole edition that Mahana was doing in North Miami. And uh, then the next winter I came down and I was pretty confused about the... Uh, we have Kentucky bluegrass, creeping red fescue, uh, chewing. All, we had names for grasses, and in, in South Florida, they had numbers for grasses. Mm-hmm. The right. hell is all, you know, 420, 328, 419. So I asked a lot of questions of the guys in the grass business. And so I worked in a grass farm the second year I went down there and built a grass farm for a guy. Uh, and then the third winter, I got invited to go over to Nassau to take a look at a project. Um, there were two projects in Nassau. One was Bahamas Country Club and one was Paradise Island. And I got invited and ended up, ended up the third year, we had to go back and resign the job up north and move to Nassau. And we took a big move. And that's the biggest move move you ever make. You know, we just... Yeah, you know, it was tough because the the club was eighty members, and we made friends with all the members. And uh, right, yeah, it was it was a tough. And you had, to get you out. had children. Yeah. So anyway, we. So just, is this is this talk. the like the the mid or late nineteen fifties? That's the really late nineteen fifties, like fifty nine. So nineteen sixty, actually, I am in uh, Nassau for three years. Sixty to sixty three, I'm in Nassau. And what are you doing in Nassau? We did uh, Bahamas Country Club. I did a redo of the greens, and then uh, Paradise Island opened up, and I took the job at Paradise Island to finish and grass that and uh, uh, grow it in. And in the summer of 63, I have a meeting with Trent Jones. Jones was doing a job in Eleuthera, another island in the Bahamas, and he would stop over at Bahamas Country Club on his way over there and spent the night at Bahamas Country Club. And the pro there told me one night that he's at the club and he, he's seen what I'm doing with his little flights over the island. Now, Ron, can I stop you for one second? 
Um, yeah. the, the golf courses in the Bahamas that you were working on, was there an architect you're working for or were you actually? Yeah, that was, uh, Dick Wilson was the architect on the golf course at Paradise. Okay. I want to get to Dick Wilson in a minute. And the club that in uh, that, that Trent Jones was working on, was that Cotton Bay? Yeah, that was Cotton Bay. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, just, I wanted to just kind of set the yeah, table there. Yeah, he did a loop for Cotton Bay. And as he was flying over, he said, because Paradise Island, uh, we pumped in 40 acres of sand. So it was quite obvious when you left the airport in Nassau, you fly right over Paradise, and you see this 40 acres of sand. And uh, he must have watched that thing get grassed because I was like top wrestling with Mologanite to, to grow grass before it died and the salt. It was all salt filled, you know. We had yeah. to drain it. And anyway, Jones was at the club one night. They told me I meet Jones. Uh, gives me his card. He says, "If you, how long are you going to take to finish that?" And blah blah blah. So, in 1963, the Francis we met uh, had a big honor dinner because that's 50 years since he won the, uh, the U.S. Open. Right. In 1913, so all this. The Caddy Award winners uh, at that time were invited back to Boston for a dinner. So I told Mr. Jones that in in Nassau, I said, I'm, I'm coming up in July, uh, June for the Open. Uh, and, oh, I'm going to be there, blah, blah, blah. So he said, well, we'll have a meeting. Let's talk about the future. So that's when I met Jones, but it wasn't it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have meet him at the club at Brookline, you know, and I I didn't got no credentials to get in the club or whatever, but just talking on the phone with his secretary, she says, he's not at the club today. He's here in New York because he had an office in New York City. He did. Yeah. Yeah, like in Soho, I think. (laughs) So anyway, she says, your instructions are to meet him at the Yale Club tomorrow morning in New York. So I had to get (laughs) on the shuttle and go into New York City and with a cab and I met Jones at the Yale Club, and Roger Rulowitz, who had just been hired about a month before me, oh, wow. Roger's looking at me and he says, that, that's him, he's in the phone booth over there. And they had the phone booth with the doors that opened and shut. Yeah. <laughs> that was my interview. Jones slides the door over and says, when are you going to finish? I said, I'll finish in September. Door shuts and he opens the He says, you ready to travel? He says, the door shut. Yes, yes, yeah. So uh, <laughs> then, then I just sit there for him and Roger says, you've just been hired. <laughs> that was it that's there great there. that's so good well let's reverse for a second because you you kind of skipped over an important part is that you were working for dick wilson first what what can you tell us about dick wilson from your experience um oh, he passed away yeah. in 65 shortly thereafter uh your meeting with trent jones yeah he was a visionary he was a strategic uh he knew uh he knew uh, what a golf ball would do. I would say he would be my beginning in golf strategy. And then Nicholas was my finishing school in golf strategy. But Wilson was clever. Uh, he he knew the uh, if you're going to be hitting a six iron, he knew how big the green had to be. If you're hitting a three wood uh, on a par five, you might get a, a – there was different ways of shaping the green. He was really good, uh, very, very clever, uh, strategic. Did he have certain things that he'd like to? He wanted to emphasize on that would you could notice on each of his golf courses, at least or at least most of them. Oh, yeah, his bunkering was was very strategic. You know, uh, he he would not put a bunker out there to aim at. It would be something that he had to play over or be part of the game. It wasn't mm-hmm. just 
targets and stuff where some other guys do things just for put bunkers for targets. But no, he was, I had a lot of respect for Wilson. He was a problem though. He was a rogue. He was uh, mean spirited, uh, drank you, a lot. To you, could you tell that in your interactions? Did you feel that? Uh, yeah. He was pretty rough with me sometimes. Yeah. Wouldn't even be over on the site. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't what you'd say a smooth personality. He was, he was a rogue, rough, rough. Right, right. Did you get the sense that he was an unhappy person? Uh, yeah, because I do know there was some problems at home, and she, uh, yeah, he he was a heavy drinker. I'd say that, and that's that's probably well publicized that he drank a lot, mm-hmm. probably yeah. to his death. He did. He drank himself to death in the locker room. Dubonet and soda. It went out. So in 1959, let's let's just choose that year, 1960. What does the golf architecture world look like to you? I mean, you're working for for Wilson, who is one of the most one of the two most prominent designers at that time. Were you aware of that? Oh yeah, yeah. My dad and I, we were because they were doing a remind. My dad was a member at. in Riviera, Florida, Riviera Country Club in Coral Gables, and they did a remodel there. Haggy was involved with them, and Dick was there, and Joe Lee, and I got to know them all there with, through my, my dad at a different meeting. My dad was on the Greens Committee there, and, yeah, we knew uh, what Wilson was doing. We knew he was doing Durrell. Uh, he was doing Palmetto in South Miami. Uh, he had done uh, Life at Key. Uh, and I I do know the it's Sports Illustrated they had a centerfold of Jones and Wilson. Wilson right. was on a power dirt with a pair of boots and a straw in his mouth, and Jones is in a button-down Oxford shirt and his mahogany desk in New York. Did that, two, did that kind of sum up exactly the personalities of those two men? Exactly, yeah. Jones is chasing uh, the IBM president and the Rockefellers, and Jones uh, Wilson is just out there in the dirt. Come and see me if you want to talk to me, and we'll tell. I'll tell you what I can do for you. You know, it was do, that. Do you recall guy. Wilson ever mentioning Jones? Uh, no. I that, don't. That, that, I, that I, yeah, that, that story, that, that famous story you're referring to, I think it was in Sports Illustrated. Was yeah. you know, is about their rivalry, the dueling architects. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, you know, and they did. Uh, there was country called Miami and Darrell were built at the same time. Uh, Durrell was fantastic. Imagination. Uh, there's still some of the great holes that, that they have not ruined. Uh, well, I, I'm very pleased at what uh, Hans has done lately at Durrell, but uh, there was some other guys in a there. Lot of, a lot of changes on that golf course. A lot of changes, and, and uh, they went into and they were you know the 11th hole is just classic. I've tried to copy that a few times, but. Uh, you know, you give him a choice on landing areas and fairways and stuff. He was brilliant. Uh, very, very, very good designer. And uh, two-level uh, fairway bunkers, a bunker on top. Instead of just having one bunker, you get one of two levels of bunkers. And Pine Tree is a great bunker golf course, if you ever see that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, what happened at Paradise, uh, they hired Gary Player as the touring pro. And that was that was the beginning of a future relationship with Gary Player. Yeah, yeah, because then they got nine holes open, and they hired Gary, and so I had to show Gary around the nine. They got grassed, and we're still building the other nine. 
and Vivian, and he had three children at that time. So uh, Gary and Vivian and Sally and I and the kids, we all became mates, and they they had a car on the mainland in Nassau, and we had everything, but there was no bridges. We had to take a boat to get to the job, and you know, so we became, we became really good and friends. That must, and that must have been right as Player was... Uh, yeah. When did he win his first Masters? It was right around that time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, sixty-two. I think. Yeah. Well, maybe sixty-three, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, that Gary and I said, well, "How much more are you going to?" You know, then I told him going to go work for for Jones, and uh, he says, "Well, uh, that that's pretty good." You know, he didn't care for a lot of Jones golf courses, and anyway, uh, <laughs> did he ever oh, say well, why? I, I, we're going to do some things together, Ron. Well, okay, yeah, but i got to learn what I can from Jones and whatever. So I traveled with Jones and did the work for Jones. And then in 1970, we start Kirby Player. And okay, we'll, we'll get to that. Let's let's yeah. uh, take a moment to talk about Jones. What was your interaction like with him? Now, as we've said, he's he's a different character, a different – he operates differently than, than somebody like Dick Wilson did. He was yeah. known as really – turning golf course architecture into a profession and he did that by being a great salesman very yeah. busy but even at that time in the early 60s i feel that he was still doing some quality work what was your what's your viewpoint on that period in the jones career yeah he was a uh, his uh, his use of rootings his layout and his guidelines of when he would actually sit down and do a rooting uh, and those, those were all done in Montclair, New Jersey, and the extension that he put on the uh, the two car garage. The cars were taken out, and he put tables in there, and uh, you could work in there with him. He had an office uh, downtown in Montclair, but the creative room was the, the garage where he drew the, the rootings. And so I I started traveling. I ended up being kind of a favorite for the Rockefeller projects because at early days they had some problems on the Mauna Kea project in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And I had finished one project for Jones and uh, he, he was, I was kind of complaining a little bit. I was being away from home too much. And he said, well, your next project is going to be Hawaii and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm not going to go there. You know, it's too, too long. He said, well, Sally will go for a month. While you're out there, so I told Sally that she says you problem stay. Solved. You, you, that was problem solved. You, you come, you, you take the deal. We go out there. So I was uh, after I did the Rockefeller job out there, and then uh, got some confidence with Jones and the Rockefeller people and the engineers. Then I, I got loose on the the Caribbean with Dorado, uh, uh, Dorado, another eight, another nine holes at Dorado, and then I did the Saint Croix with the Rockefeller group, and then. At that time, uh, we had uh, Atlanta, Atlanta Athletic Club. Uh, we had University of Georgia. Uh, some work, a lot of work was coming out of Atlanta area. So I became, uh, he was, with Jones, you're going to get this. There was one designer with Trent Jones, Inc. Uh, that's and that Jones. was him. That's him. If you when you it's unique when you go to work for Nicholas, there's senior designers, there's design associates, there's on-site design coordinators, 
the, the, everybody that works for Nicholas is a designer or some got some design in their title. But uh, Jones introduced me as a young executive every time. That we, he said, they said, what's Ron doing? So he's a young executive. He's a young this, he's a young that. Because at the time, I was in my 20s. Right. I was uh, <laughs> I had a crew cut. How's this for a fact? I had a crew cut, and he says, you're going to let your hair grow. He says, you can't be selling trench shops and coming in with a crew cut. Yeah. And Nicholas had a crew cut, yeah. Huh. <laughs> so looking back on it, is there uh, one advantage to the Nicholas uh, way of operating with, you know, kind of maybe outsourcing a little bit more of the, the responsibility versus oh, the, you, the Jones? You, you yeah, the, the, that's what, if you look at how did Jack do it, He's got a lot of talented people working for him, you know, and they're all on the right wavelength and they're all creative. And yeah, there's, there's, that's, I think that's, if I had a, and I did have a team and, uh, you know, when I did have the office in Atlanta, but uh, I encouraged everybody to, you know, be designing and use your brains and do your thinking, you know, there was, you can't, one guy can't do it all. Well, did you, know? you think that in the Jones system that, I mean, he did have people like yourself working. Roger, you mentioned Roger Rulwich yeah. and others. Were, yeah. they, were you feel? Did you feel like you were handcuffed a little bit? Oh yeah, it was only you, know, you had to do it his way, and it'd be bunker left, bunker right, and we had uh, drainage problem in bunkers. You just build the bunkers as high as you can, and they'll drain out to the side. That's why a lot of Trent Jones golf courses are blind. You you go to tee it up, and you can see the bunkers, but you can't see where the hole is. Because uh, we put all these damn mounds out there, every every dogleg had mounded, you know. And then Pete came around and found out they had plastic pipe, so we didn't have these little small pipes, and uh, they could put the bunker down, and you could see the greens, you know. So so Trent Jones was, was was building those bunkers out of necessity because he hadn't yeah, the drainage, yeah. the drainage wasn't work. figured out yeah. yet. What about Wilson? I mean, he he built kind of flashy bunkers as well. Yeah, and he was—he'd uh, have this, almost the same problem with drainage. So it was, uh, Pete was a guy that opened everybody's eyes on how you could bunker it and keep it low, so you didn't lose the visibility. Mm -hmm. you, you, your holes started to look better. Right. Yeah. What was your What was your specialty, if if I can use that word? What were you really good at, and what were you doing specifically on these jobs for Jones? Uh, uh, expediting. Getting the uh, the right clearing done on the right holes so the contractors could work, and the uh, if there was irrigation, we had the the pump stations involved early. Uh, if there was an on-site nursery, we had the. You know, I expedited uh, better than anybody that worked for him uh, in the early days. He knew that, you know that I would, we can't be doing just what you want to see right here because we've got to do four or five things before that. And uh, he kind of liked that. And uh, so I was more of a uh, site. I enjoyed being on the site with the guys and uh, leading the team that would, that he put together, these teams, because Jones owned a few contracting companies. And he had a few other irrigation guys that were his pets. You'd have to have a certain guy doing irrigation. So I just, I worked in with those guys and tipped them off when, I, when I'm going to need them. And, but that, that worked out pretty good. Was that unusual at that time for Jones to own his own construction companies? 
Uh, that's kind of a, I don't think you want to be printing that. Okay. Yeah. It was not right. I, yeah. I mean, if, if you read the book on him, the, a difficult par, there's, yeah. it's a little bit of a sticky situation. There's, it's contentious. I know. Yeah, it is. And we would, sometime we, the athletic club was built on a package deal where he would, get, he would hire all the contractors. We did the design build for the, the 27 holes at uh, Millcross or Duluth. And that was a package deal. And I was president of that company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was, and I, I, after that was over, I said, don't ever do that to me again, please. Yeah. 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 That was, uh, it was awful. Did you uh, ever get a chance to work alongside either Reese or Bobby? Uh, Bobby was involved in the Mauna Kea in the early days. Uh, and Reese, occasionally we'd see Reese because Reese was just breaking into the company because he had his uh, Vietnam problems. Uh, he was in the National Guard and about that time. Then what happened, Jones thought... Uh, it would be uh, smoother if, because we had a lot of work in Europe, and he couldn't, he was so busy that he's putting off the Aga Khan, he's putting off the, the people in London, and then, and he's putting off the King of Morocco, and so I was sent over just to put the fires out. The Jones can't get here right now, but I'll I'll sort out I'll sort out what we can while we're here until he can get here. So I made a couple of trips over there, and then he said, it's probably better if you take the family and go over and live in Europe. So I did that for two years mm-hmm. for Jones. It was a clever assignment, and uh, I never, it, I'm thankful. But when that was over, because uh, I had to get the kids back into uh, American high school uh, grades, because you don't have that in Europe, and uh, they, were, they had to have other points so I could get a high school diploma. <laughs> And we moved, we bounced them around a little bit, and then they ended up in a kind of an American high school in Geneva. But uh, that's another story. But I get uh, I get back in from uh, the two two years in Europe, and Reese and I have a little uh, discussion about what I'm going to do, and so there was some. Was it uh, a contentious discussion? You got it. Yeah. Did <laughs> so, you, was it more like the lines of, you know, I'm I'm the guy here now and there's no room for you? I think the line was something like, we've had a happy family since you're in Europe, Ron. So, uh, <laughs> and the, the Jones family was never happy. I mean, come on, that's that bullshit. So, uh, anyway, uh, it was tearful. I had to tell Mr. Jones that I won't be doing any more work for him. And he and Mrs. Jones did everything they could with Sally and I just not do it. But he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. But Gary had talked to me about how much more you're going to learn. I got a deal for you in South Africa. I got this going on. And I, and I another guy, I stayed in Golfland Motor Lodge. Is that still there on 85, Golfland Motor Lodge? Mm, I don't recall seeing it. Up on 85? Uh, just Which direction? To- north? Going out toward Greenville? Yes, before you get to uh, the Norcross turn up, before you get to Spaghetti Junction, before you get to 285. Oh, man, I don't, I don't think so, Ron. Right I've side. never noticed it. I <laughs> I drive that stretch quite a bit. I, uh, 
Uh, there's think it's a little, there was a little motel there. They had a nine-hole short course that he uh, he it was lighted at night, huh. and uh, I used to stay there. And uh, Larry McClure uh, was the owner, and so he was building Kingwood up in uh, Clayton, Georgia, and I brought up the irrigation guys on weekends and put his ir- they put the irrigation system in for him, and I. Worked with a bulldozer guy one weekend up there, a couple of weekends, and did some green shaping for him. So it was kind of a moonlight deal that I did, which I encouraged anybody that worked for me, I encouraged the moonlight. And I told Nicholas that, we should encourage moonlighting. Uh, it makes guys think better, you know, and put them on different assignments. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Reese heard about that. and was, But this guy, a golf land motorized guy, he chased me all the way through Europe and uh, said that he's going to build another nine at Berkeley Hills and I could come back and use his house and build a nine for him. So I told Gary, I've got a deal. I've got nine holes to build in in Atlanta. And I, I think I, Gary said, that's brilliant. Let's do it. So we made a partnership. But, uh, we said we we're going to have a partnership. And then we worked all the details out with IMG and started that in 1970. And I had to have a guy that could produce drawings, and that was Arthur Davis. And Arthur was there for a couple of years. It was. What was Arthur him. doing before he came to work with you? He, well, before he, he came out of the grass farm business, and then the, the grass farm business, they sent him to Georgia, and he got a landscape architect degree, and he worked for Willard Bird in mm-hmm. Atlanta. Then he started his own company, and he was in a one-room office down at Wyuka Road, and, and – uh, the grass farm guy, Ray Jensen, Southern Turf, he said, go see Arthur. He'd like to meet you. So I met Arthur. And Arthur could draw our plans. And so we made, I brought him in the team. And we he Arthur already had the Lakeland Near Islands job. And I had Berkeley Hills. And so we pulled in the stuff. And then we went from there. And we started Kirby Player. Uh, Davis, Kirby, and Player was where we started. But Arthur didn't get along with paying the percentage to Gary. Yeah, you know, so he said, that's not a good deal. And I said, well, no, we got to have to have Gary. So we, we, I said, I'll keep it Kirby Player. So we continued Kirby Player. And then Dennis was hired early days. Dennis Griffiths was hired uh, in our office, and he stayed on. Den- Dave, Dennis is still doing some work. Right, yeah. Hey, let's take a quick break now to hear from our sponsor. Okay, I don't have an actual sponsor, but I will very quickly talk about how Golf Digest is available digitally on the Golf Digest app. Everything you get in the magazine is available through the app, plus videos and interactive features. And that's important to note because most of the magazine features are not available on GolfDigest.com, only through the digital download. In Issue 7, I've written a long profile on architect Jim Ang, who was one of the most sought-after architects of the 2000s, but is now only working internationally on one project at a time. Ang, my guest for the very first Feed the Ball podcast, Episode 1, is a true visionary and artist who developed a style of design distinctly his own. So what happened? You can read about it in the digital edition. And what's great about the digital edition is that it lasts. Even if you're listening to this months or years in the future, I'm recording this in late June 2020, you can flip through the past issues and find the stories I'm referencing here. So don't miss anything. Download the Golf Digest Digital Edition, available for your phone or tablet via your favorite app store. 
And now let's get back to Ron Kirby. Let's push pause on this narrative and and just backtrack yeah. one moment to um, your time in Europe. What was that like? Um, you we kind of glossed over that, but you know you're building golf courses in Europe. What was was that significantly a, a different experience than working for Jones in the U.S.? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, Did you yeah, get a sense? There was there more freedom the for projects, you? The projects were brilliant uh, projects, big big time projects, big time owners, uh, exciting. I mean. The uh, the Sardinia project with uh, for the Aga Khan on the Puerto Servo at Casa yeah. uh, Serralda, a beautiful site, um, first class, and their um, the project was just another project that was uh, in Morocco for the King it was twenty seven holes and it was the eight we built twenty seven holes in Yorkshire, uh, and then it was this, he had finished one in Spain or two in Spain and. I was involved in a couple of remodels that we did on the two that we did in Spain. So I was in and out of every, almost every country in Italy and um, Belgium. We did some work in Belgium. Uh, How do those uh, golf courses turn out? Uh, uh, they're all top, top grade. I mean, mm-hmm. they play in the tour. They play in, in Rabat. They play uh, the one in, in Sardinia is still fantastic. Uh, it's a great scene. Scenery. Uh, and I, guess what I, I guess what I'm getting I, at I is, did have, I did have a bit of freedom on the rootings if I could prove that um, there was a better way of getting around a rock or a mountain or whatever. But on the project in uh, in a farm in England, he has spent enough time on that that you couldn't change a tee. Mm-hmm. If I said there was a better place for tea on the other side of the wall, he'd, he'd fight it and. Uh, Tell me, don't do it. Put that over there where I have it. You know, and, you know I, I could see that's a better hole. Then finally, I get him in the field and say, "Couldn't they, we should have put that tee on the end?" Yeah, I says, "You should have fought me on that." Yeah, you're right. You know, but you know, I'd had enough experience that this time I could see a better hole. The hole that he wanted was there, but he was on the wrong side of a wall. And yeah. That was just one little thing. But uh, the work was great, and the experience was unbelievable. And there I had worked with uh, all kinds of different contractors. When you work with Jones in the States, you're working with his contractors and they're doing what they want to do. So you didn't, and then I'd have too much to do with the shaping. Some of the green shapes were just kind of repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. The T's were repetitive. Everything was kind of repeat, repeat, repeat. So it was, uh, I had a little bit more creative freedom on um, the shaping and the contracting uh, on, on the European scene. Do you think the re- the repetition in the designs and the architecture was out of necessity because Jones was so busy that he couldn't, you know, pay as much attention to each individual projects as, as maybe it demanded? Or was that just a preference? That's just the way he liked it. Derek, I'm going to say this. Uh, that was the timing. He had so much work. You had to have a big dozer. We didn't have the little 360 diggers that we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you got some of the shaping we're doing now is brilliant, but we had D8 shaping greens. So you got to have big greens to get that big push of dirt and the big ro- and the big slopes. You know, you couldn't get a small slope in a green with, a, with those machines we're using. Right. So Jones was just tied into the, the contracting that the guys were using the big machines and – that's why everything that Jones did, all those golf courses that you see with Jones at uh, 
uh, the athletic club, the athletic club, and uh, University of Georgia. Uh, um, we got a little bit better on some smaller projects like uh, Chanticleer. Uh, you know, we get, but he was uh, like pulling teeth to get him to use smaller machines and be more clever. He was just this. He showed me the green design. This is this will fit for that one. Put that green in there. Put this green in there. These are standard green sketches. Mm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's what you hand to a contractor, and that's what you're going to get. Well, so, is there one golf course that you worked on for Jones that you think turned out really well? I mean, maybe maybe you think they all ended up being being very good, but is there one that stands out as being particularly or the excellent? Monica, the Monica is mm-hmm. probably it, that showed he can be. He can be flexible because we had to do a lot of dynamiting and a lot of blasting. And uh, we did have small machines there. But I'd say Monacea would be one of his top ones for uh, being clever with the rooting and clever with the the design. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I wouldn't give him big, too big a mark for the uh, – the site at the athletic club was not that great either. It was just an old yep. farm that they – covered up with pine trees mm-hmm. there and was a pine just, tree at the it it there in, in Duluth there's a pine tree every foot and a half or two feet pine tree were planted in what was called a soil bank to keep the soil from eroding then when they stopped making cotton they planted a pine tree every two feet and those slash pines they that's for pulp wood but those that's what that golf course is built in slash pine pine woods yeah, it's, it's not a great site. It's just flat up on that bluff, and then it just it drops right. down to the river, and then it gets back up on the bluff. And you don't really use the river, and you know, it's yeah. I wouldn't give my marks on that. But anyway, uh, let's jump back into the uh, Kirby Player era. Um, yeah, was how involved was was Player with the in the design process? Did he contribute ideas to your projects? I, the easiest way, Gary would endorse anything. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a dollar sign next to it, he was good. Yeah, yeah. Gary was good for PR, and he was great. He was great PR, uh, and the owners loved him, and he kept winning, winning tournaments, and uh, uh, that was super. You know, when I worked to work for Jack, Jack said, "How much get, did Gary?" Same question. What did Gary do for you? He said, "Well, he got me work. You know, <laughs> did he help you at all?" No. Yeah. And you know, he tell me that he liked uh, smaller greens and. You know, he liked what, well, everybody saw what Harbortown, come on, Harbortown kind of lit everybody up that was trying to do work. Uh, man, this is good, you know, and, and uh, so we we all tried to see what Pete's doing next, you know. <laughs> but uh, you were... Gary, just, Gary would just endorse. Yeah, he was a good man. Uh-huh. Yeah, he got the jobs. So and let's then, talk uh, about, let's talk about some of the, the courses you're designing now that you're out on your own. Are How are they distinguished from the work that you were compelled to do with the Jones company? Because uh, I'm always curious about this time, you know, that the, the, the 19 late sixties into the 1970s and eighties, it's, it's not considered a high watermark for golf course architecture. Um, some of it's because like you just referenced, a, a lot of people are looking at uh, a true innovator like Pete Dye and, and cool. trying to figure out what the secret to his success is. Uh, you're getting into housing development golf courses. There, there's... Yeah, Jones, Jones was married to uh, Harlan Bartholomew Land Planning. Uh, uh, he would recommend them, and they'd be the land planner. 
and they would the routings would be how many fairway lots can you get and that's a now working with Jones in Europe zero didn't have a land planner uh, was, uh, there was one good land planner on the Sardinia project uh, and that was very helpful uh, and then the guy was brilliant uh, but we were looking at uh, vistas or whatever but we didn't have the housing count, lot count for fairway frontage, that kind of stuff in Europe. And that was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And uh, coming in, coming back and working in my own company in 1970 to 1986, it got tiring and tiring dealing with any kind of land planner. And um, if you want to be, find a job that was good. So I had more fun uh, in the company jobs that we did, uh, when Gary got me the job in uh, Sun City in, in South Africa, where they played the Million Dollar Tournament, that was brilliant. I went out and, and almost lived there. I made 11 trips to in one year out there to South Africa and spent lots of time on the job and handled that. And I'd, I kind of learned on the job there uh, even more. It's still learning, but, you know, I had more creative juices running on that project than I would have in a real estate development in South Georgia or in Macon, Georgia or, you know, Dolphin Head and yeah. Hilton Head and those, those other jobs were just kind of, although the Dolphin Head job, I like to mention that one. It, we were in the lowlands. Uh, I got the assignment to do Dolphin Head through, for the Sea Pines Plantation people and Pete had already done Harbortown. And there was a new golf course going to be built, so I got the assignment uh, to do Dolphin Head. Now, a lot of those resort uh, lowland golf courses, uh, they're all crowned for, they were draining the fairways to the sides, uh, and you couldn't keep the ball in the middle of the fairway. You, your fairway, your tee shot down the middle of the fairway would run off to the side. There's a lot of it's sea pines. Um, and it is uh, even some of the courses down at Sea Island and or Jekyll, whatever, you'd have those kind of crown fairways. And I reversed that at Dolphin Head. I put the fairway, middle of the fairway low and put the hills on the side. Raised hell with the land planters because the, the views from the houses was closed off. Oh, that's a no-no. <laughs> I said, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, yeah, I got this thing so the ball's going to stay in the fairway. The guy's going to do the golf course more. You know, we got to think about yeah, the God forbid we think about the golfer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, it's still one of the best golf courses down there in the islands. And it, there's a there's a pipe down the middle of every fairway for drainage. I just made a note of that. Uh, yeah, the 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 uh, all my you know, I'm like the Hall of Fame of owners. Uh, a lot of my owners are overseas. They're not American owners. You know, mm -hmm. the Irish guys I work for, the Italian guys I work for, the, the Philippine people who work for, the South Is that African a good thing? I, I think I got to know them better, and I think they were they were looking more, when they hired somebody to design a golf course, they wanted more than just a cookie-cutter uh, type design. So uh, I, I, I related very well with the, the owners overseas. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I so we with the company, the Kirby Player Company, we had to work in Japan, we had to work in uh, South Africa, uh, we had to work in Spain, uh, and eventually we had uh, Kirby Player work. We had a little bit of work on the continent, not much, but one more on the continent, I think, in Europe. But uh, did you ever get a, a truly good site in the United States? Oh yes, yeah. Uh, uh, Tuscaloosa, they they gave us a great site at Tuscaloosa um, for the yacht club there in Tuscaloosa. Mm-hmm. That was good. Brandon Mill was good up in uh, Virginia. It was very good. I got lucky by being uh, expediting and doing things for Sea Pines at the same time that they were uh, working with Pete at uh, Harbor Town and then Amelia. Uh, Pete uh, never met a budget he couldn't break. <laughs> That's the story anyway. <laughs> uh, I would be on budget, on time, and uh, the Sea Pines people love it. So they, they assigned me, they, they started selling Sea Pines Plantation, well, Sea Pines Development Team for different uh, developers. And that got me a job in Puerto Rico, got me a job in the Philippines, got me a job in Tuscaloosa. Uh, pe- people had been down to Sea Pines and said, well, how, how do we get to hire your people? And they, they, as a package, they had a golf designer named Kirby, Kirby Player, Kirby Griffiths, whatever. They'll come along and give you the prices, whatever. And they recommend <laughs> to them because they'll be on time and they'll be on budget. Mm-hmm. And, the, uh, and it worked out very good. No, oh, that's important. I'm... So when you're on these job sites and you're in the the planning phase, the design phase at this moment in time, whether it's whether it's Kirby Player or later Kirby uh, Griffiths uh, in the late '70s and into the '80s, what are some? What are you trying to accomplish design wise? Do you have? Is there something that Ron Kirby is 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 thinking about either strategically? Or uh, the way the the holes flow and shape. What are the conversations and, and thoughts you're having in this era? Because I'm trying to get at, you know, I'm I'm personally very interested in connecting the dots between the golden age, the 1920s and teens, has just been absolutely analyzed to death and and mag- worthy of it too. We start to lose lose the the pathway a little bit. In the in the forties, fifties, sixties, and really even into the seventies, you know, just mm. I don't think anybody cares enough to really <laughs> try to analyze it or, or or go deep into it. You're you're one of the major operators during this time, and I'm I'm curious, like what where is golf architecture in in this you know middle to late seventies period, and, and where are you? Where do you fit into that thinking? Yeah, well, I was probably guilty of. Uh, you know, I'd have to have some, uh, you know, like Nicholas has a calendar hole or, you know, but uh, you'd look for the most spectacular, you find the spectacular hole if you could or something that would light everybody up when they go home to talk about one hole or two holes. you got to have something that they can talk about, a wow factor or whatever, when you walk in and see the pro shop or you see the golf course, whatever. you got to get them something. Luckily, on some of my overseas stuff, I had that easily. The sites were great. Yeah. So I always have something I could be good. But stateside, uh, it was a bit, you had to have something. And my growing up 
golf course was up in Wenham, Massachusetts. Uh, and I remember my grandfather had a little alley that was called Crosby's Alley. My, my grandfather was a Crosby. And he was a, a part owner of the golf course. And they rented the land and they built their own golf course. But there was an alley. There was a Crosby's Alley that you could play this whole. that was really off to the left from the dog leg left. You know, you cut through this alley. So I tried to occasionally have an alternate route. And I did that in Macon one time by just building an island in the middle of a lake. You can play to an island and a par five. Then I did it at Dolphin Head. I put another fairway in. Um, so I, I had like the alternate route I mm-hmm. hear. Uh, early days with Wilson. Uh, Wilson one time had a guy take me to Seminole and show me some work that he was doing at Seminole. And that's when they showed me the, the 15th hole the 15th, of Seminole. Yeah. Uh, so I said, yeah, that'd be something nice. If you're going to design 18 holes, somewhere we got to give an alternate route where he can do it. So we tried to put an alternate route. It doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense, you know, but you can do it with tees, you can do it with fairway, you never want to do it with two greens. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> Although yeah. it is sometimes done. That's dumb, yeah. And I've seen Jones Jr. just did one thing and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But anyway, that's, but as a designer and taking money to uh, to manage the budgets, taking that budget and spending it, I always try to get the best value I could for the owner, and uh, I felt better giving him his uh, his money's worth and something he can maintain. And some of that bunkering that we ended up doing with Jack, and some of the bunkering that uh, I do in the in the Jones eras, the, that bunkering was was overdone and uh, expensive, too, many, too big. So. I, I started cutting back on the bunkers, and now it's just a, it's a major effort by me to take out bunkers. This last project in Barbados is amazing, what I'm doing there with the bunkering. And I, I think that Hans is on that same drill with the grass hollows. If you get clever with the grass hollows, you can do some nice stuff, and uh, I'm doing a lot more of that. So looking back on, on this period of time that we're talking about uh- – are you saying that there are things that you would do differently or, or you oh, were definitely. satisfied? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah. Cause a lot of it is now I got the 360 digger. Uh, I won't let a dozer get near a green unless I have to. Mm-hmm. I just think I just piece my way around with a, a 360 uh, and just move the dirt as I, you know, I, I think Justin says he wants to use a, do- a dozer here and there, but, because this is a redo that they've already moved most of the dirt I'm just changing the shaping and taking out bunkers and the point of this is because you can get such greater finer detail finer detail and you're not and you just get it so cute yeah you can do it so it does it fits better yeah now I was in in the 70s I always got the impression every time we talk about this I you always have to say here's what everybody was doing and then Pete Dye was doing this over here Pete seemed to be was he an early advocate of using small equipment Yes, yeah. He was a man, yeah. How would he do it? Yeah. And, yeah. And he came around when they had this plastic pipe. You could get rolls of pipe. Before, we had to have two-foot concrete pipes. You had to get them all lined up, and then you don't ever uh, know for sure you're going to get drainage. You know, <laughs> you get one, 
one of them just get out of line and you get that as a problem. But now you get all these plastic pipes that can run forever. Mm-hmm. So you can't drain things and keep things, you know, it, it just helped. He had better equipment and better materials, and he came at the right time for his designs. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm obviously not an, a construction expert, so when I think of, of architecture in the in the 70s and going into the 80s, I think one of the biggest differences between what, we, what we've seen in the last 20 years and what we saw then was a lot of the golf courses of, of that era of the 70s, they just lack that detail like you're talking about. They, yeah. they, they, they just seem kind of like flat and monotone. Uh, and th- that's not even taking into consideration the the development and, and the owner and the constraints by you know put on golf course design by by housing and, and other things. But would you is that something you would agree with? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that I did. Uh, there was a twenty seven hole job in Valencia in Spain. It's called the Scorpion, the name of the golf course, and they've had the uh, Spanish Open there a couple of times, and then they I get they invited me back. I'm going to say like five or six years ago. Uh, can you just give us a little bit more life and the finish 16, 17, 18? You know, it's a, a, uh, a, sh- a short four, then a three, and then a par five uh, finish. So I says, yeah, we can do something. So I did, at the last hole, I took out all the bunkers and just put bigger water. There was a lake there, and I made the lake bigger. And I put uh, what I'd seen Hans do in TPC Boston with the, the grass hollows on the left side of the green. So if you came out of the hollow, you had to be careful. You didn't hit it thin and go in the water on the other side. <coughs> so I took out all the bunkers around there, and they were just delighted with that. And, you know, some, we you know we were just too many bunker left, bunker right, bunker left, bunker right, and all this stuff. Yeah. We did, uh, what do you do? Nobody really thought much of grass hollows. If you're mowing them tight, because we, we now we got better grasses and you got better mowers, and you can leave an island of little long grass and clumps, so the guy just can't put it out of there quickly because the flags in the position right behind the clump of grass. So they got oh, you got more fun with these hollows. So I'm doing away with bunkers and I'm in the hollows big time. Uh, so it, things have I've changed. There's things that I I did I would never do again. Uh, and then, because uh, quality of the of the turf is getting so much better, and never heard of sand capping. You know, you you live in all that red Georgia soil up there. You know, we figure we'll just grind it up and grit, and we'll get Bermuda grass to grow in there. We just have to keep feeding that Bermuda grass, and we can get a turf. But then they started uh, top grass on the fairways there, so any fairways in Georgia that look good are the ones that are top grass on the sand. Mm-hmm. But in the early days, you couldn't even think of covering a, a golf course construction project with sand. But now they're doing it with six six inches of sand on almost every golf course. Yeah, so, just, so in, in Yeah, so let's let's keep moving. In 1986, you dissolve your company with Dennis Griffiths. He, he basically takes over that firm, and uh, yeah. he's on his yeah. own now. And that's when you join Nicholas. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, uh, it was any time somebody was trying to get a job with Jack, they'd either say, I used to work for Ron Kirby, uh, <laughs> and they'd apply to Jack. So if I'd see Jack in the locker room with Gary or if I'd see Jack at a golf event, he'd just – Send hey, Ross. 
How about this guy? Does it, who's he? Is? No, he's counterfeit. Don't use him. Yeah, no, hey, oh, he's good. You could get him. Do him. Yeah, he's be a good guy. Yeah. So, and we were also still looking for work. And Jack was getting all the good jobs, all the good budgets. And he passed the word that he was going to have an office in Europe. And who would he recommend? Now, at that point, he asked uh, Gene Bates, who's my son-in-law. Right. And Bates is working for him because Bates was a contractor at one time. Then he eventually, right now, he's a golf architect. But uh, at one time, he was just a shaper and a bulldozer guy because uh, he caught on to it. He was in some sort of a land reclamation for strip mining when he married Faye, my daughter. Mm-hmm. But then he came around the office, and he knew Dennis, and he knew the guys in the office. And But uh, he was more of a shaper and a contractor. And so he got a job when Jack had a construction wing at one time. And the name got, you know, the, the Jack had mentioned, you know, we ought to get somebody to live out in Europe, you know. And so Gene mentions to him that, hey, Ron's used to live over there. And, you know, be good. and Jack says, that would be perfect. We ought to talk to Ron about that. So I get the word that Jack <laughs> is interesting. I said, oh, my God. The kids are gone. The kids, and I don't have to worry about the kids going to school over there. I said, that would be a great assignment. And because um, I hated administration, you know, Dennis is good at it. He can administrate and take care of the secretaries and all the forms and whatever. But I just want to be in the dirt. So I tell the guys in the office and I said, there's a chance we could I could get them to buy the whole company. Oh, Dennis says, no, don't do that. I don't want to move to Palm Beach. So we we worked it out that some feasibility studies would be done by Kirby, Kirby Griffiths in Atlanta. And then I go to work for Jack in 1986, and that's the best move I ever made. Really, I mean, Jack is a good guy, and he understood that uh, you know, he's going to needle me. And uh, what you, you know, what would you do here, Ron? You know, and then he put his face right and said, "Why would you do that?" You know, just he'd ask me to help. But I, I learned so much on strategy with him. Uh, what he, what he can see, what a golf ball can do. There's nobody, nobody in design. Maybe now Tiger, he knows what a ball will do, uh, and he'll probably get some jobs. But uh, Ron, let me let me let's follow that path for yeah. a moment. Now, is that practical to, for, to get into Jack Nicklaus's mind and what he sees and what he knows a golf ball can do? That's not very many people can make the golf ball do that. So, yeah. how applicable to ha- have you found that is to golf design in general? Definitely if you're I'm assuming if you're designing a golf course that's going to host a PGA Tour event, that will be very useful knowledge. How how about just on an average resort course, a development course, whatever else you're working on? Uh as long as you don't overdo what you've learned from Jack and and give it uh something severe that is that nobody can handle but uh, a good episode there is, you know, it, yeah, you just can't, what you learn from Jack, you've got to tone it down. Uh, you know, it, if he has a bunker on the left above a green and he knows that it's a, he's happy with a 2% slope on the green, that will never stop. Uh, okay. He can do that with nickel, but you can't do that in a resort course because they'll be there forever. Mm-hmm. Trying to get up and down out of that, and get, yeah. So you you can't do if you resort. That, but most resorts would love to have a, a competition. So you got to be put the necklace things you learn 
into little little tricky little places, but get enough un- so it doesn't have to be uh, the Sunday pin position uh, never is used until there's a competition. Right. So the the, the strategic thought that that you're learning from Nicholas is that. Um, is it really about like angles and, and hazard placement and, and guarding things, or is it uh, mental and, and how people psychologically will approach the play to a whole? Uh, it's just uh, the word is strategy. This Nicholas is the best strategic golf designer uh, I've ever even talked to or worked for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess you can't. So, <laughs> so it's just something you can't explain it. Yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's Nicolaussian. And if I sense on this, I don't think you want to do that. Why? Well, you know, it's, it's against the rules. Who makes the rules? I said, well, you don't put a hazard in front of a hazard. You don't put a tree in front of a hazard. You don't put a pond in front of a bunker. Or, you know, uh, no, no, who writes those rules wrong? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, my nickname was, uh, he one time did, some cross bunking at uh, one of the projects in Ireland, the Mount Julia job. And it was kind of a plain vanilla uphill hole, and you get on the top of the plateau, and now you're looking at the green site. And uh, he stood around and stood around and he says, Okay, we're going to dig a hole here. We're going to do what? And I said, We'll just dig a hole across the fairway here. Oh, yeah, just put some cross bunkers down in there. What, what is that for us? I don't know, just, just going to give it some character. It works out the way they hit the ball now. It is super character, and uh, so we were you know, probably months later. We were in another project in Glen Eagles or something, and I said to him, "How oh, he said, well, we're going right into this green now." And I said, "Hey, good place for some cross bunkering." Oh no! Why would you? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> well, you did it. You know, well, you did it over there at fourteen at Mount Julian. It looked nice. It's almost. A, why was it? Then he'd walk off later, and, and when nobody's around, he says, "That's a brilliant idea. We'll do it." <laughs> <laughs> but so you keep the, him in order, keep him in line. He is uh, very, very. The word is strategy. He knows how to do it. He knows what what he likes, and and he, you know, he got away from. I guess early days stateside, he would do a lot of right to left. Uh, come down the left to right holes, kind of big fading holes, mm-hmm. and they had to get away and balance those. And so he does balance all those holes. You can, when you do a rooting for Jack, you've got to have them all balanced. Strategy is an interesting concept because it, it, it's it's hard to define. It's a big it's a big category. So many things can fit into it. Do you think yeah. that when you think of what you're talking about with Nicholas's strategy, when I think of strategy, I, I, I think of um, open spaces with, with hazards that are aligned in such a, a, a setup that gives you options, challenge spots, safe spots, uh, some angles are involved. Are, are the golf courses that we've seen built, the really good ones, you mentioned Gil Hans a few times, courses like that, are, are they more strategic to you or are, is a Nicholas golf course that's a little more narrow and a little more defined more of a strategic golf course? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, and Nicholas Golf Course is probably the most strategic golf course you, you'll ever play. Uh, I, I haven't played, really, I don't think I've ever played a Hans Golf Course. Just what I've seen on TV, what he does. On the, but I like what he does so mm-hmm. far. Uh, but as a comparison of a Jones or a um, Jolie or any other 
uh, the Fazio courses, Fazio kind of pretty looking stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Jack has got a lot in there that you probably don't realize until you actually study the whole or why we did it. You know, his, his, uh, field book is, is a dazzle. I mean, it's, there's more information in the field book that, that is normal uh, angles and areas and the depth of the bunker. You know, he would actually get balls and not golf balls, but uh, rubber balls, so they can see how how far the ball is going to roll out of the bunker onto the green. Right. He he was lights lights. He laid out, he lit up my life as far as a golf designer, and it was. Some of it was amazing, you know. We we came to one situation in a, a unique area in front of a castle, or old French. It was a Paris job, and in front of this Paris job, uh, we came around and I said, "Boy, you're gonna love this." Coming right out out of the trees, and we teed up, and we got this background of this formal castle and gardens and it looks like Versailles. Oh, really? Yeah. So we get there and he comes out of the woods and he says, man, she says, you got this all wrong. Well, how will I get it wrong now? And he says, you got it backwards. Yeah, I want to play at this house. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I said, that's beautiful. Look at that house. I don't want to play away from it. Said, okay, we can do that. And I said, how about a pond? Yeah, we put a pond in there. So then I sketch out a kind of golf looking pond and the uh the authorities the french authorities said it wouldn't look good to have a a free-form pond you should have a rectangle pond or whatever as well jack will never go for that <laughs> showed it to jack says, brilliant let's do something else i'd love to build this so it's like a, a big uh versailles like a garden yeah, yeah, like a pool. It's in a garden, you know. A fountain. Statues. It's amazing, you know. But it is. It's a good, really good hole. Yeah. So do do I have this right? When you were working with uh, for Nicholas in Europe, did you live in Monte Carlo? Uh, we lived in Monte Carlo. Uh, there was the beachhead. We started out. Where can we live if we live this time in Europe? And the advice we had was not to live in England because we liked England, and uh, we speak English, and we knew people there, and I had good friends there. But they said, no, you don't want to do that. Uh, so the uh, there might have been something if Jack had an office in England that he would they would tax worldwide taxes, worldwide income. Uh, so they said, we'll stay away from England. Okay. So I knew that the Toro irrigation guy lived in Monte Carlo. Carlos Ochoa was living in Monte Carlo and he was handling all the Toro irrigation. And uh, so I talked to him. He says, yeah, he said, you can live in Monte Carlo. You got to find an apartment and then you get a permission, a card, a, a residence card, and you can live down there. So we tried to do that and it took a little while. He had a, uh, it took a while to get a, a card, but the minute we got a uh, and there was a client that we were building a golf course for in Milan, and he had an apartment that he could recommend that we rent. So we rented an apartment, uh, tiny, but we rented an apartment in Monte Carlo, and we were there about 
close to three years, two and a half years, and then we had enough staff coming over and more enough, enough projects that uh, and one of the official guys from the office at Golden Bear had moved over there in, into uh, Monte Carlo. Does, does living in Monte Carlo sound better than it actually was? I was wondering if there are any good stories. Well, it was an adventure, and uh, you know, getting grown because where we lived was down by the port, uh, a new port. It wasn't the old where you see the race, but uh, this is two. It's a pretty good hike to get a, get up out of there to where the shops are and whatever. But they do it with uh, since Grace was there, married to him, she did a lot of uh, elevators. So you just walk until you get to an elevator, and you take an elevator up to to another level and then take another elevator up <laughs> so you could get elevators up to where the casino square would be if you're in the, where the restaurants were or whatever we didn't go up there very often mm-hmm. and, um, and right there where we lived in Monte Carlo it was the helipad and you could for 50 bucks you could take a helicopter to the airport so I was computing, commuting with a helicopter and come out of that walk out of the house right through the garden over to the helipad which was two minutes away and I'd chopper over to the uh, airport wow. and then go in one door and out the other and get spoiled. Get airport. You get spoiled yeah, living it, like that. I am <laughs> definitely spoiled. And it was it was brilliant. I I'd say it was adventurous, we met a lot of people. And today actually I made three of the Monte Carlo races. I had three seasons there. I went to race three times. Nice. Sally went one time, and she got out of town for the next two. She hated it. <laughs> the noise. Not her th- yeah, the noise, the crowds. The noise of that, and it smells. The, whatever they burn in, it stinks. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't burn gas. They burn some kind of lighter fluid. I don't know what they're flying around. <laughs> when that ends, uh, the part I work part-time. I tell Jack they're going to just work part-time for him. Just be there when I need you, and okay. So... Um, where there was a good friend of the Carr family, Roddy Carr and Joe Carr, a famous golfer. So the, he, Joe Carr had been asked to design. Right, the, the, the famous player. Irish amateur. Yeah. yeah and he'd been asked, because the, the two brothers uh, bought the old head property. Uh, the O'Connors. In, yeah, the O'Connors and Kinsale. So they... They don't know a lot about uh, uh, the Arnold Palmer of Ireland is Joe Carr. So they hired, they just called Joe Carr and said, we want you to design a golf course. And he says, I don't know how to design a golf course, but I'll come look at it. So he looked at it and Roddy was with him. His son Roddy was a uh, Walker Cup player and he played the tour uh, for a while. And, and he worked for Jack at Mount Juliet. So anyway, they invite me to come take a look at it. So I'm to help Joe Carr do this project uh, in the old head. And we got started there. And he had a greenkeeper from in Dublin. He was kind of boss on the job. He was Australian. Anyway, well, the What did you think when you see this property? Cause, uh, and I'll just I'll kind of outline it for people who, who may not be familiar. This is on the south does. coast of Ireland, and it's built out on a um, – yeah this promontory that juts out into the sea. There's a little narrow isthmus that leads out to it. And then you have what, like 150 acres of land on cliffs propped up above the sea. That's how that got started. And then one thing led to another. What did you think when you, when you first saw this property? 
oh, it's just fantastic. Wow. You know, <laughs> and there's no trees, there's no houses, there's nothing out there, but there's a few goats, and uh, there's a lighthouse, and they have a gate, and uh, the People can walk to the lighthouse on the weekends with the baby carriages, and it's a nice walk. And on a sunny day in Ireland, it's nice. But they win the court case that they don't have to have access to the lighthouse, and that was a big protest. And uh, but they finally won that, and so it's it's all worked out nicely, and the, the village is all happy, and it's done great for Kinsale and. You know, you can't get a tea time. This year you can get a tea time because anybody that had a tea time for this year, they're giving it to them next year and they're selling 50% off. You change the shoes in the car park right now and you can play golf there at half price. Wow. Now, uh, this as, as majestic as this place is, though, it's a pretty difficult property to build golf on, isn't it? Uh, definitely, yeah. I Sometimes I get asked questions like, what's the toughest you ever built? The Mauna Kea in Hawaii was tough because it was rocky, barren, no trees, uh, a side hill, and they had taken the mud rocks and rubbed them together, uh, Rockefeller and Jones, and said, we can have soil this. Well, the, every night that dust would blow away, and you'd have nothing but black and ugly, uh, blue and ugly rocks, and... Uh, we ended up, uh, that was uh, one of the toughest golf courses I've built. Now you get rock outcrop at the old head, but it rains. <laughs> so there's a difference. The old head is just like the uh, Mauna Kea. It's a tough golf course to build. Uh, you just had to bang away at the rocks. To and get add the, terrible the weather on top of it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the guy wanted me to, the farmer up the road, he said, I get extra soil. It's, and so the owners took it, and we dumped some soil. But the, we we ended up buying sand. We'd seed, and then we'd get a little turf, and we'd top dress with sand. So there's been probably an inch or two of sand added to all those fairways, and they're perfect. Just mm-hmm. The fairways at the old head are beautiful. And we never, there's no water. We don't water the fairways at the old head, just water teas and greens. And, we, and every year, well, I did a, ten, a five-year program, no, a 10-year program for any future captains or leaders that come into the old head because a captain gets elected and he likes to put his little mark. That's like the chairman of the Greens Committee or the club president that wants to plant a tree or something. Uh, but we gave an outline for 10 years what they could do that would improve the golf course. So we're still on a 10-year program and we just, we've done a new number 8 green and we just did a new number 10 green. Moved it back a little bit because it was found it's a little bit short on the par fives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, those are my two. The two toughest golf courses. One has got no rain, but you, the kind of tough it is, it was easier at the old head because it, it, it rains on it. Well, going uh, back to the beginning of old head, yeah, you. <laughs> Did you route that golf course with Joe Carr? Did did other people have input into it? And what was that like to, to try to fit those golf holes on that piece of land? Okay. I'm pretty sure the, the layout was done by Eddie Hackett for another owner, for the exist, existing the owner that sold it to the O'Connors. Okay. He might have had Hackett do a layout of a golf course. 
using the Coast Guard station that was ruins. There was the ruins of an old Coast Guard station. And if you put a, a building on where there was a ruin, you get a permission easier than a new site. You probably wouldn't get a new site permission. Mm -hmm. So that was the routing that they had, and they showed it to me. Roddy had done like a brochure, and we showed up there with a brochure. And I said, well, you could do a little bit better with the routing. So I did a rerouting uh, and found the, the 12th hole, uh, 13th hole, 14th hole. Mm -hmm. 15, 16, 17, and 18. So those are, I, those are changed. Uh, the back nine is is changed by mine. Uh, the seventh hole is was rerouted across the road, and we call that the legal eagle because we had to move a road uh, <laughs> out to the lighthouse. And basically, there's little other bits and pieces of rerouting, but uh, I have probably... 75% of the routing is mine now. Okay. Yeah, because it's a, a new number six green that we took a wall down and moved the green back over a wall. Uh, and yeah. So it's, yeah, so it's one of these strange places because it's, it's hard to, you know, it's not like you look at, um, name your golf course, you know, Oak Hill, Donald Ross designs, you know, this one has a lot of different, like many golf projects, it had uh, starts and stops before it finally got built. And, you know, even just when you go to their website, they list like six different people involved in the design of it, you being one of them. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's a very, it's not a clean origin yeah, story. Yeah, they could clean that up, but it's, you know, because the Higgins was useless. He was, he's a golf pro from, from Waterville. And O'Connor would bring him down in the winter, and he'd put a bunker or something in. Uh, it was no help. But uh, anyway, that's that's a given. I don't I don't want to challenge that too much because you'd have to go too many places. But it, I know what it is, and then most Joe Carr knows, and he's passed away now, Joe. But there's there's a cop. They're doing a coffee table book this year, and there's another book by Joe with the whole chapter of the old head, Breaking Eighty. And that's a pretty good book about Joe Carr, and that's it's got the good story of it. But yeah, yeah. Well, I have not been there. I have to confess, I, I haven't been to Old Head personally, but it's one of those places that you know, if you're going to go on a, a golf tour of, of Ireland, it's probably going to be on the itinerary. It's a spectacular place. Um, it, it sounds like are they doing pretty well before the the virus hit? Were they being uh, oh, yeah. a successful they're, operation? Oh yeah, they're very successful. Most successful. Golf course project I ever was involved in. Yeah, and and you yeah. go back and you've been going back to consult and and tweak a little yeah. bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, for for about ten years, we lived half the year in Ireland. That's not bad. Six months, yeah, it was a great run. Yeah, not always, not always in Kinsale. I got a little bit more work in Dublin area, so I I uh, was asked to come up to the Dublin area, and uh, I did that for a while. But, uh, we love Kinsale, and Sally's ashes and my ashes will go in the wall, one of the walls that I moved at the old head. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah like they're going to put a plaque there for Sally and one for me. Yeah. By the way, do you still play golf? Do you get out and play? Yeah, I'm playing. I played Friday, week, this last Friday, I played with my daughter, uh, Faye. My daughter Faye was a flight attendant with Delta, and she married Jean. But uh, she plays at North Palm here with, at our course, and it's a remodel by Jack 
and mm-hmm. uh, played with her. And I my a lot of I have like a Monday and Friday game, but a lot of those guys went back north. Uh, so I'm just it's just a little bit hot. So I I play nine holes early or go out hit balls at five o'clock. I usually go over the range and hit a bucket of balls. Yeah. Well, we started off talking about your project in Barbados. It's called the golf course is called Apes Hill, and it was yeah. built what 10, 10, 12 years ago originally. Yeah, and you've been hired to do some remodel work. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. It's a it's a pretty neat property, isn't it? It's 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 oh, on the island. It's got nice views, great views. It's it's pretty mountainous. Uh, this uh, Apes Hills could be Apes Hills, but it is, and there's a lot of monkeys all over the damn show, but. Uh, that end of the island gets a lot more rain than the other part the, towards the airport. So Roddy Carr, he, he was uh, a tour player. Then he became Seve Ballesteros' manager. Hmm. And then Seve and he had a falling out, and he got paid off and took his money. And he cool. He liked Barbados. We're down with some friends at Sandy Lane and Irish friends there had bought it. And, sort of, and, and while he was there... A derelict golf course, overgrown Barbados Golf Club, was taken. Was the bank had taken it back, and the government was kind of worried about it. And so they asked the people that are doing the Sandy Lane project, could they fix up Barbados Golf? So they gave the project to Roddy. So Roddy got like half interest in the Barbados Golf Club, and he asked me to come in there. So I went in there and worked on that and got it back to a, uh, a playable golf course. And so Barbados Golf Club has been there 20 years. And it's the only public golf course in the on the island, and it gets a lot of hotel play. And blah, blah, blah. So that he, Apes Hill is going to, when it died, it just sat there for about five years, overgrown. And one of the members, wealthy enough to say, it's, what's it, must, he ought to buy it and take it back and see if he can fix it. So he asked Roddy to do a budget on how to put it back and fix it. And I helped him with the budget, and then we met the owner. He's a Canadian. And we now have it five fairways redone and planted, fairway grasses replanted. Uh, Justin was there for a few months and did some nice shaping and grading, and he built a bunch of tees and took out a bunch of bunkers. They had 107 bunkers. It was a landmark development. And Landmark somehow got a couple uh, spin-offs from the Die Group, and they built some awful bunkers, vertical to holes in the ground. When uh, there was 107 bunkers, I'm going to end up with 15 on each nine. There'll be 30 bunkers when finished. And I use a lot of grass hollows. I'm going to grass hollow this to death, and really small sand areas because mm-hmm. it's a waste of money and a resort to have all those bunkers and trying to maintain and vertical slopes and fly balls, whatever. So fixing that up, um, it, it did have a pretty good um, car pass system. The car pass are all concrete, so that's worked out good. And I've done some layouts, and so we're going to have all new greens, all new fairways, all new grasses, and they've got these new zoysia grasses. The Zorro is what we're using for fairways. It's brilliant. We got our own nursery. We're producing our own grass. The job is going good. It's only two months behind schedule. If we can get Justin in there and we get to polish off the nine, we can have nine holes 
in the ground and maybe they can have nine nine holes to play in the catch some of the season this winter maybe in July uh, January or February they might be able to play some we'll see on that but yeah. the owner the owner's happy and he's going to redo the clubhouse he's going to build a short course nine hole uh, six hole short course now and uh, there'll be a 19th hole in front of the clubhouse clubhouse kind of asked backwards when they built the golf course first but there's the nine short, the six short holes now, and one extra, and I'm going to copy the 17th at TPC and put that in front of the clubhouse. Uh, so when you finish playing 18, you come and play 130-yard island shot across, and then go have a couple of beers and celebrate or whatever. <laughs> so that, it's coming out. It's kind of a fun project, and it, it fits nicely into my schedule because I can fly from Fort Lauderdale nonstop, get down there and work a week and then come back on a, go in on a Monday, come back on a Friday night or a Sunday morning. And uh, it was working out real good. Well, hopefully we'll, you'll be able to get back on that schedule. Yeah. Nobody knows you know, mm. what flight, you know, flights out to the islands are going to be like. Um, yeah. But fingers crossed. And it sounds like just listening to you talk about it, it's kind of a neat project for you to be able to try some new things and, uh, yeah. you know, get in the dirt. Now, when you design and build things now, you know, Pete died, made throwing plans out the window, kind of a thing, you know, he didn't use plans and, uh, kind of improvised, uh, at least in the feature shaping part of it. And, you know, the green shaping, um, where do you fall on that spectrum? Do you, how, how reliant on plans have you been throughout the course of your career? Well, when I do, uh, all through my career in one little episode back in Massachusetts, uh, before high school, uh, the, it passed on from my grandfather to me that I can draw. I have some talent, to, uh, some art talent. I'm, I've done a lot of watercoloring lately. And uh, so there was a, uh, in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston on towards Fenway Park. Uh, on Saturday mornings in the winter, I would go to art class uh, take a train and a subway to go out to Fedway Park and go to the art class to the Museum of Fine Arts. So I've had a skill that's, that I can sketch anything to scale anywhere. If you leave me long enough, I can sketch. So everywhere that Sally would be shopping, I'd need a sketch of or watercolor. Maybe a little small watercolor would be, and I, I, that's my hobby. So my what I give contractors with shapers, I give them a two-piece drawing of what's out there now and what I want, and I give them a, a sketch. And I have them on my desk right now, but you can't see them. But uh, they're, the, the bulldozer guys, they love the sketches. They don't like the contour drawings that are issued by an engineer. So give me the sketch, Ron. I'll build it. Yeah, <laughs> so, I can see that. That's, uh, that that's makes more sense to me. So, it's worked so good for me. And... Uh, I got through the Nicholas years with this, and uh, uh, even Gene, my you know, my son-in-law, Gene, he'd, he'd like to learn how to sketch. But you know, it's, it's, it's something you either got to have that gift that you can draw yeah. what you see, or you draw what you want to see. So it's something I've I've been doing, and and that's how. But Gene, when he kind of phased into semi-retirement, the guys, uh, Matt's. Uh, 
Swanson that does, did all his grunt work and did his drawings, he's still here in town. So I all my grading plans that I need for engineering, to, for quantities and for measurements, for elevations, uh, I get that. I, I sell that out to uh, Matt. He does a set of drawings for me that's got all the elevations and the quantities. Mm -hmm. So I, I get that. I just farm it out. Right. But my green sketch is what I give Austin, uh, Justin, and Justin loves it. Cool. And, and the owner loves it. The owner, one club in Ireland, they made a book that they gave the members, a book of my drawings, a little pamphlet book, like a stroke saver book. So Roddy wants to do one of those on this job, so I'm going to have to clean up my drawings and give him a, a set of green sketches. Hey, can I ask you one one more random question? I'm curious. This is a guy that I'm always I've become quite curious about. What did you think of of Robert von Hage? Oh, class class act. Yes, uh, a good friend. I knew him early when he he was a uh, commercial artist. He could draw. He could paint, draw, and he did all the renderings for Dick Wilson. Yeah, and it was a he. You know, there was some scandal. You knew that, maybe. What what do you know? Did that have something to do with, with, he, with women? Why with, with the twins. Mm. He married he married one of the Bauer girls, Marlene Bauer. I, I had I remember he had he had married a famous she was like an actress, right? They were, they were golfers. Tour they players. Were. Okay. I got my <laughs> they were gorgeous. Gorgeous uh you know, the when tour players were not gorgeous, uh -huh. you know, Suggs and the, you know Betsy Rawls and, and Patty Bird. Yeah, Marlene and and forget Marlene Bauer and the other ones. Anyway, but Wilson always liked to have the lady players play at his golf course because he was he liked he thought they they played golf better and they were more strategic or whatever. Somehow he, he always collected lady pros playing like at Pine Tree uh -huh. down here in Florida. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. He, he was married and he, he was okay. But uh, I guess it was a, a punch up one night and just in the raw dining area of the clubhouse. They didn't have furniture. They had plywood tables. And I guess Wilson was either had too much to drink or something, and he said something to Haggy about the, the one of the twins, and uh, Haggy decked him. <laughs> so that's... Yeah, I was probably coming, long time coming. Yeah, and so Haggy went next door with an owner and built Cypress Lakes, a golf course across, out the street, you know, but started Haggy on his own company. And Haggy... Uh, Extreme on what he did. He was extreme the way he dressed. Extreme, but he, I liked him. He was a good friend, and I, uh, he had talent. He was a super talented guy. It seems like he had a, a point of view in design as well. Like he definitely was trying to accomplish things artistically with his with his yeah, architecture. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I had some. You know, we'd always hug each other when we saw each other, and, <laughs> and and I guess you knew him back when he was just. Bob Haggy. When he worked for, he was Haggy when he worked for, uh, yeah. just Bob Haggy worked for, uh, and, you know, just doing the renderings. Uh, and 
I had asked when he when that thing happened. I knew all about it because that dirt, that rumor became of that story about him getting in a fight with with Wilson. That actually happened, and I heard about it in NASA. So I next time Dick is on the site. I said, Dick, is there an opening in the in the office, <laughs> Kirby? You're still pissing on a flat rock. <laughs> What is, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> you, you haven't learned anything, you know. You, you got a lot to learn. You know? <laughs> it's great. So, so Ron, when you kind of look around left and right, think about those the last you know ten twenty years and, and the things that you've seen, the, the work that you've done as well. Yeah. Are, are you satisfied? Are you pleased with where your profession is right now compared to the sixties and seventies? Yes, um, I'm. I'm pleased. You know, I'm, I'm thankful. I, I'm. You know, I'm thankful that I caught what knowing my dad and I. We, you know, I was going to be a greenkeeper, and look at what it's done for me to have a house paid for here in Florida, a golf membership, and uh, Sally and I were married for sixty-seven years. You know, lost her this year, but uh, it's. It's been a great surprise. It was a surprise, and I'm thankful for the life that it's been given me. You know, and I, I've, I've got friends all over the. You know, some of them passed away now, left and right. But uh, I'm just delighted. And you know, as far as there'll never be another boom on golf design, and like, hopefully the marquee name business. That'll phase away. I I don't like the mar the marquee name kind of hurt golf. I, even though I did have that respect for Jack and learned a lot from Jack, but whatever Jack did, then uh, Norman would try to do more, and uh, I don't know who, who other. Sure. But, uh, we we don't need to be outdoing each other with. Uh, more bunkers and more water features and you know, the worst episode in the world would be like Pound Springs. Everything's got waterfalls all over the show down out there. You know, it's in the desert. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, but the, the minimal guys in the core and the Crenshaws and the uh, I'm not sure about Dope, but uh, I don't know him. Uh, I think this Hans guy, I listened to him. He had a really good interview with the USGA the other day, and I caught that one. Uh, but uh, I, I'd i say there'll never be the boom of all the numbers, the 200 golf, if you, when they were trying to build 200 golf courses a day or something like that. Was that the crazy number? Yeah, yeah it was like it was a, a course a day opened at one point. You know, two two hundred fifty, three hundred golf courses opening every year. Yeah, every year. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Um, the the sport with the and then we made it so complicated and so hard to play and so hard to maintain and you had to charge so much and we kind of lost the plot and you can't play them and you can't maintain them and you can't so they're closing them. So it, uh, I'm not proud of what we did and all the boom but 
Maybe some of them are good. I, I've got my name on 75 projects with my name. Most of them, I'd be happy to go back and see them any day. One thing I'm very proud of, they've listed one time the top 18 holes in the world. And number four at the old head is one of the 18 holes in the top 18 holes of the world. Now, there's a lot of lists of people's favorite top tens, whatever. But that's the list that I was so proud. I got one of my holes in the top 18. Hey, yeah, there's only 18 spots in the entire world. That's amazing. Yeah. This is a great hole. Yeah. That, that, this is that hole that heads south and curls around to the left yeah. on the cliffs. With the, oh, the lighthouse, yeah. Green the perched up there. Yeah. Yeah. That one, that's a winner. That's right. Frame <laughs> yeah. that, put it on the wall. It's never going to change. <laughs> it's locked in time. <laughs> is there a is there a golf course that you have not seen in ages, or or maybe even since you walked away from it from the last time that you built or had a hand in building that you'd really like to go see? Is there one more than others? Yes, and there's a there's an invite standing. I'm good. Ron Jr., uh, he lives in Brunswick now. He just, in between, uh, there's no golf construction. He was in the golf course building side. He actually worked for Jack. He worked for me in Thailand or whatever, and he's been around. But he's going to be 66, and he's going to get his Social Security, and he's going to travel with me for a month in October. <laughs> no, I'm thinking him a few I think they made a movie about this once, right? Really? Yeah, this is like Final Rounds. This is a book, Final Rounds. I'm going to take him to a couple of places. He's been to Ireland a lot, you know, but uh, he's never been to Belgium. I, there was a, a dentist who hated being a dentist, and I met him through a seed salesman, and I, she showed me the land he was going to build it on. And he got more land because I said, there's not enough land. So we worked until we got the right land, the right extensions. And, and then we, I built a golf course for him. I designed it, and he built it, and he stopped being a dentist. And he, now his family's grew up there, and the brothers work in the pro shop. The daughter works in the pro shop, and the mother. And he's got a little tiny hotel there, a little, probably a 20-room hotel. Uh, and his son... Uh, one night he said to me, I know how to do what you're doing, Ron. And he said, I can do this on my computer. And I said, no, you can't. And that's the early days. I'm going to say that's probably in the 90s. I said, don't talk about that. Be quiet. You can't do what I do on a computer. No, can't. I can do it. Yeah. He ended up, he is now where he's, I put him on the payroll on the project for Nicholas that we had over there. And then he worked, and they worked for Nicholas now. So he is a senior designer for Europe, for Jack. So Dirk says, my dad wants you to come and see you your golf course. I haven't seen Spiegelman, so I'm going to go to Spiegelman in October. <laughs> I'll go see this. I haven't seen that since I finished it. Ron Kirby is going to Belgium because he's still rocking along now in his eighth decade of golf course design. Somebody should check that. I mean, that's got to be an all-time record. There was someone else Ron wanted to mention uh, as a great help to his career, but he didn't get a chance to bring it up in the podcast, and that's John Clarkin, the noted Irish turfgrass specialist who's worked with Ron on a number of projects and consulted at places like Chambers Bay. We wanted to make sure we got a shout-out to him, so John Clarkin, you're in now. 
A quick note. Ron had mentioned in the podcast uh, the old story in Sports Illustrated from 1962 about the differences between Robert Trent Jones and Dick Wilson. It's a tremendous story, an illustration of both of those men, as well as an illuminating glimpse into golf design and how it was talked about at that point in time. I've linked the story in the show notes if you'd like to read it. Overall, just a wonderful and fulfilling conversation with Ron, who, as I said before, has had a front row seat to and was an active participant in the beating heart of golf design going back into the 1950s. Just remarkable to see it through his eyes, and I hope you enjoyed listening to his firsthand and quite unvarnished accounts of the men he worked with and the moment they were in. We often say, because the evidence is there, that so many designers during this period in time looked at what Pete Dye was doing and started to emulate him. And I guess before that, a lot of architects looked at Trent Jones's work and mimicked what they thought was successful about that. But Kirby flatly says here that he and most others really were following Pete's lead in things like drainage and how to get their bunkers to lay down. It just never ceases to amaze me how influential Pete Dye was. At age 87, Ron is not slowing down, playing golf in the morning, hitting a bucket of balls in the afternoon, jetting to Barbados in Ireland when he can. He is an inspiration, and he's even picking up some new tricks, including some from that Hans guy. Thank you, Ron. I look forward to catching up with you in person soon. Really like to encourage you to explore the archives and the back section of Feed the Ball. Great interviews with some of the most notable names in golf designs. We've recently had on this Feed the Ball Salon podcast people like Jeff Mingay, Bobby Weed, David McClay Kidd, Reese Jones. You can go back to feedtheball.com and explore the original interviews with those and many others. Please do me a favor and subscribe to the Feed the Ball podcast at your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Feed the Ball, click the subscribe link, and while you're there, leave a rating and a review. Pass word of this podcast on to your friends and contemporaries if you're enjoying it. And on social media, please give me a follow at Feed the Ball on Twitter and Instagram. Once again, thanks to Ron Kirby. Thanks to you all for being loyal listeners. Thanks to the Sundogs. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.